Chris Ramo. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Maybe I should be on a podcast every day this week. It is January 27th, 2016. A different way to say the date for a different kind of Idle Thumbs. This is Idle Thumbs 247. A typical number for a typical Idle Thumbs. I'm Chris Remo. I'm James Spafford. And joining you as always is me, Jake Rodkin. Good. <laughs> well, we totally... All here. Well, not Nick Brecken. He's He's sick. He's gone. Uh, I was just playing the witness just now. I witnessed before you this playing podcast. The witness. You did witness me playing it. Um, I imagine you've completed it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. No, I played it for like forty-five minutes. I only mentioned that I played it because I feel like if we didn't mention the witness the week that the witness came out, it would be weirdly conspicuous. It's just I haven't really had time to play it beyond that. I was I didn't play the witness last night for the 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 most insufferable of all reasons, which is that I was at the witness release party. (laughs) (laughs) Eat shit. Eat shit. (laughs) How dare you celebrate before you've played? Yeah. So, uh, you know, (laughs) what are you going to do? But it's very, I mean, even in the very, very, very short amount of time I played, which is, which is not enough to, to lay any like particular judgment down or make any interesting observations. Like the one thing that is already clearly true is a thing that I, you know, I think most people would expect from this game, which is that it's a mist clone. It's a, <laughs> it does have like a, it does have a very misty vibe, which I like a lot. Uh, but it just already, I've maybe solved a couple dozen puzzles at this point. Does that seem accurate? Yeah, 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 definitely. A couple dozen, and they're already just branching out into different forms that are incredibly interesting, and you know, much like Braid, right from the beginning, the game just drops you into it. And you're just figuring things out, and all of the learn to play is delivered entirely through just the game mechanics as you figure them out, and that is a really hard hard thing to do in games. And it's cool that Jonathan Blow has committed himself to that across his two, like his two sort of major game releases. Uh, he is good at it, I guess. Uh, but this <laughs> game is it's really cool so far. And that's yeah. it. I'm sure most people, not most people, I'm sure plenty of people listening have already played way more of it than I have. So this is not a useful discussion. So I won't talk about it anymore, <laughs> but I can't wait to play more of The Witness. It was quite mesmerizing to watch, actually. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, that makes sense. Um, quite fun. It could be a good couch co-op thing, maybe. I don't know how long that would last. Cause you'd, ha- you'd have to pass off the controller yeah. a lot. It just <clears> seems like it would be, I was imagining what it was like from your perspective and watching someone fuck up a puzzle and try again again and again seems like it would be infuriating it's not too bad true. i mean you because you can kind of solve those puzzles in your head slightly it's not quite i'm sure they'll get to a point yeah, right but because, because of that when you, you see someone turn left instead of right yeah. and doing one of those puzzle panels you must just be like no oh! it breaks your mind yeah. but yeah i mean yeah <clears> you, fun. has your experience so far been limited to like is the only thing that you've actually done so far literally be entering into those little 
puzzle panel things or do you think that there's going to be situations where your what input you give in those is informed by the larger game or do you have no way of telling so far um that seems to like it will be the case um there's also sort of little narrative elements that i've found already that are there pretty early on um and then also things i've done just include walking around looking at everything and it's really pretty and you know everything it opens up pretty quickly and you're already given a lot of real estate to walk around on. I hope that people understand that when I leveled the accusation immediately that it's a mist clone, that they realized that I was referring to like 1994 or something. <laughs> Cause I feel like it's around the same era that everyone said that every, every first person shooter was a doom clone. Right. Yeah. It feels like every adventure game that did not have a talking protagonist and that had yeah, puzzles was a, mi- guess, was a, was a mist clone. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Not a lot of missed clones these no. days. Man, that was definitely the era of the sort of clone <laughs> progenitors. The, like there were, you know, those like big, huge, formative PC games that has kind of happened on console as well. But um, I guess there there were a few sort of superstar um, mainstream breakout franchise hits on console. Like obviously the Nintendo ones and Sonic and stuff like that. A lot of Halo but, clones. <laughs> Uh, but on <laughs> the P- on the PC, you had these like uh, s- a lot of small developers and individually named people making game. If you look at like um, Will Wright's SimCity and Sid Meier's Civilization, and uh, you know, Mist from the what the Rant, yeah, the the ran- Cyan, really. Cyan, but I mean, Cyan, it was, it was the Cyan, Rand brothers yeah. and a small team, and um, or and, the Miller brothers. Geez, Rand and Ryan Miller, right? Well, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And then um, and their kid Paul Rand, <laughs> and then Doom from ID. Like there were these games that all sort of spawned things that people called clones, you know. And then, but uh, which eventually just sort of became genre create, you know, like sort of just genre definers. That felt really. It feels like at the time too. It feels like on console of that era, what clones were were licensed games where like, I'm going to make a game of the movie, the mask. It's going to be like a shitty, it's going to be a clone, (laughs) but in a completely different way that I think fooled the mainstream press away from calling them clones because they had the names of popular movies attached to them. Yeah. There were a lot of those at the time. Yeah. Some of them were good. The mask one probably wasn't. (laughs) I don't know. I never (laughs) played 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 the mask game. I'm going to find out. Notable clone house THQ. Um, <laughs> anyway, whatever. The Witness. I, I haven't played The Witness at all yet because my PC is too shitty and I don't own a PS4. But I plan on changing that really fast because I want to play this game so bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which one of those things are you going to change? Ideally, both. Ideally, I get a PlayStation 4 in the very near future. Um, also, I have a game coming out on PlayStation 4 in like oh, a week. Oh, you're just dropping that? You're just going <laughs> to drop that? Just um, but, uh, <laughs> a little, little breadcrumb really there do, for people? Hearing Chris talk about building a new PC and how like just elated he was at how sick his PC is <laughs> makes, makes me want a new PC so bad. Uh, and then I can play two copies of The Witness and find all the hidden endings. True. You can find all the differences between the two versions. That's right. I could do a comparison. Oh, man. You could do a side-by-side. Reflections on my PC are measurably more crisp. Although apparently The Witness runs really well on PS4. I mean, I guess that makes sense, but because it's an engine built just to play The Witness. Yeah. Um, Chris and I were uh, intrigued by the shadow of the player. Oh, uh, yeah. It was really interesting. The game has a fully illustrated player shadow, like a, a fully... The, 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 sh- the player casts a shadow that looks you know if like you a, look down you don't see a body but right, you have exactly. a full you shadow yeah so you see is, two feet on the ground 
The well, two feet shadows. It's like see, Peter Pan's yes, shadow or it, something. Exactly. It's Weird. like the opposite, basically, of what we did with our game, Firewatch, which is has a fully articulated guy, but the shadow is a little more cheated. Um, and it feels like it's really hard to do both completely well. You like you either have to pick one or you have to be really fucking smart. Well, I mean, when we when we first started talking about doing that in Firewatch, the solution that we were going to arrive at is have a clone, like build our first person yeah, animated yeah, yeah. character and then have that entire animation tree duped and animate a shadow version of it so that all the cheats can be, instead of being optimized for first person camera, be optimized for shadow. And then we were like, that's not happening in the game that we're making. But yeah, yeah it seems like we we picked one and the witness picked the other because mm-hmm. you get, yeah. either way you're animating a full character for first person, which yep. is crazy. That's cool that they did that though. Yeah, it, it's looks, interesting. it looks really cool. I mean, there's not uh, one choice that's obviously better, but it's really cool in this game to see... You're, it was surprising, right? Because yeah. I just assumed this game was going to be fully disembodied, you know, just sort of floating first person protagonist. Um, but having the shadow grounds it a lot, even though you don't see your even hands. Even though you don't see yourself? Like that. Yeah, That's yeah. interesting. Which makes sense because what would be the point of seeing your hands in this game? Like, are you, would your hand, would your finger like <laughs> tracing <laughs> the puzzle panel? Like, it would be really yeah. weird, right? Yeah, so no. I think they made the, they, they clearly know. thought about all this stuff. Yeah, that you can right see call. yourself casting shadows on trees and stuff. And yeah, yeah. I kind of want the finger tracing mode now. <laughs> mods. <laughs> Just poking. Get on it. Mods, mods, mods full mods. body. We found the shadow mesh and we rendered it. That's like the, the hack that you make is yeah. drawing the, drawing the shadow mesh in the first person. God, camera. that would be terrible because it wouldn't link up with anything. No, it, it looked terrible. That would be like if someone was like, if someone made a third person mode for crisis and it was like check this out of it it's just that like <laughs> fucking weird like spider like <laughs> yeah god or like mirror's edge third per- third person mode would just look like a oh, fucking like it would look like a tiny version of the cloverfield monster running around or something like it would just look <laughs> insane um yeah the witness third person mode <laughs> The witness third person mode is actually just like Peter Pan's shadow. Mm-hmm. It's just an invisible oh, character with a little shadow on the ground running around that yep. you have to use to gauge where you are. <laughs> Someone make it. Yeah, That's really weird. You when see- you go into the shadows, you wouldn't be able to see yourself anymore. Oh, man. At all. True. Yeah. <laughs> but that that can, shadow's like, character name is like, The Witness. Yeah. Also. Yeah. <laughs> But then you can like travel through those shadows and emerge anywhere uh, that shadow continues as contiguous like connection. <coughs> classic power, classic video game power. Shadow teleport, shadow, shadow uh, blink. Yeah, shadow um, blink. There you go. I, I don't know why I'm, we're talking about this now, but do you remember uh, <laughs> like maybe nine months ago, maybe a year ago, someone uh, who was demoing their Unity third, per- third person player controller showed how powerful it was by cloning. Uh, Mario from Mario 64 and it sh- oh, yeah. like, where they were like, look, you could do a fully featured Mario. And then they just offered the unity package that had a Mario in it. And then <laughs> Nintendo was like, uh, you cannot, <laughs> you cannot literally release a downloadable set of scripts and meshes that lets people put a Mario in their game. But I have it still. <laughs> and it's, it's, <laughs> I hope that a bunch of other developers do because that would be the, the, the best and worst game jam of all time, which is <laughs> take your unity project and fucking slam Mario into it. Like, Obra Dinn, but Mario. <laughs> Firewatch, but Mario. Oh, the Witness, man. but Mario. Like, just, Witness isn't a Unity game, but God, like, that would break Gone all Home, games. but if fucking you could, Mario. If you you could, could jump that high in all games, you would just break all games. I know, but just, oh man, all you want though is someone yeah. to do a dive slide down the staircase and Gone Home as Mario. Like that, you could Man, ju- I want to see, so Obra Dinn. That's why, like, that? fucking pixel art hypercard uh, rendering of Mario yeah. woohoo, running so, around the deck of that ship. Wait, r- remind <laughs> people what that what that is. Obra Dinn, um, what's the full title of that? 
it's the some, something of the. I'll look it up. It's yeah, um, explain it. It's the new game by Lucas Pope, who made Papers Please. Mm. But it is um, it's very different from Papers Please. It's a it's a first person game on a pirate ship where uh, you. Your objective, at least in the demo that he put out, was just to figure out the order in which everyone on the ship died. Like it's a it's a ship just full of corpses, and you have um, <laughs> you have a, a little like pocket watch that you can bring out. It, it's w- near a dead person, and it does this really dramatic wipe effect, and then you get like ninety seconds um, in like fr- frozen time of the moment of their death. Like it rewinds the world to the moment of their death and you can sort of examine it like a, fr- like a frozen in time uh, crime scene. So you'll like see a dead body. Then you use this, the pocket watch on them and you'll see the person actually like in the middle of being shot in the face by a different like pirate who's coming through the window. And then it, that makes you go, Oh wait, that means that someone must've come down through the window. And then you can go up and, find that guy's body and look down and see the moment that that person died. And then you enter into the ship's log, the order that everyone, that everyone's deaths happen, but it sort of uncovers the backstory of this world. But anyway, uh, Oh, and um, it's rendered in the style of an old Macintosh computer monitor where it's all, it's all black and white dithered pixel art, um, except that it takes place in real time first person, but it's like totally, totally crisp pixel, single pixel edges on all the shapes and stuff. Like it looks like, um, it looks like if you know the games that Cyan made before they made Mist in Hypercard, like uh, Cosmic Osmo and the um, the Manhole, it looks like those or something like that, except that it's real-time 3D. So, so anyway... So it's a Mist clone. It's, it is. So it's a, I would describe it as a Mist clone, but then imagine if you could replace the player character with Super Mario. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the, the full name of the game is Re- Return of the Obra Dinn. Yeah. And... Uh, I there's a I think it's like a TIG source thread where Lucas Pope is actively developing it and it looks like he posted in there a couple of days ago so he's still yeah he's still working, working on it that, the you game can looks, download a dev build he put like, he put a demo up yeah. a few months back and it's it's fantastic I be, if if the premise of it sounds interesting I would almost say don't play the dev build just look at some screenshots of it and then wait because the dev build was really cool, but it made me just go, okay, I've got to stop paying attention to yeah. over din until it comes out. I felt, I felt the same way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, imagine that with Mario. <laughs> <laughs> Picturing it. So another, another game that I've, I've played a lot. Well, okay. So I shouldn't say another game. The first game I've talked about today so far that I've played a lot of <laughs> um, is Tharsis. Oh, yeah, cool. Staff, I know you have also been playing. I have been dabbling in Tharsis. You've been dabbling. Yeah, have you completed it yet? been kicking my ass. No. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. It's hard. It's what, fucking what hard. What is this really so brutal? Thar- Tharsis is a game by Choice Provisions with Zach Gage, who made- Choice Provisions was formerly Gaijin, Gaijin. Games. Yep, the guys who made BitTrip. Exactly. And stuff. Yep, yep, BitTrip yep. Beat. Okay. They're here in San Francisco, yeah. And- um, is there, it him and Zach Gage? Yeah, Zach Gage contributed to a lot of the system design on the game. It seems like he kind of th- this game feels very much like a board game. Yeah. And that is the kind of thing that Zach Gage What are some games he's worked on? He I know made he did Spell Tower, Tower and he made he worked on the board game Guts to Glory, is that oh, what it's yeah. called? Uh-huh. Which it was a game where you eat various things and keep things that in your mouth that he, you're chewing made to about, give you powers. He's made about <laughs> five good. million games. Yeah, he has. If you go to his website and look at his list of games, it's it's basically infinitely long. Uh, so anyway, he he worked on this game with Choice Provisions. 
And this is a dice-based game that literally represents dice rather than rather than sort of abstracting dice as just a behind-the-scenes random number generator. It generates random numbers by physically modeling the roll of dice. And apparently that's actually what's going on in the game. Like when you roll dice in this game, the game engine is literally just throwing the physics object that is the cube and the result of where the die lands is what the number is. Which is really satisfying. Yeah, it totally is satisfying. The the premise of the game is that you are on a a six-person, you're among a, a six-person crew on a ship to Mars, on a mission to Mars. And at the opening of the game, two of your crew dies in just a series of catastrophic turn one uh, spoiler there failures and explosions. <laughs> yeah, this is literally the first thing that happens in the game. <laughs> and so you are left to then attempt to reach Mars with your four remaining crew. And what is it? 11 weeks or something. I can't remember how many weeks it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe 10, 10, 11. Yeah. Weeks? yeah. 10 or 11, 10 or 11 that. weeks, each of which is one turn in the game. And each turn, more catastrophic things will happen on the ship and you are making decisions about where on the ship you're going to send each of your crew members and what they're going to try to do, whether they're going to try and repair these these um, uh, destroyed systems, you know, whether they're going to try and do other necessary things using other facilities on the ship, um, such as restore their health. Um, you know, help, gain other resources that are helpful in terms of like influencing die rolling, things like that. Um, and the way that you achieve all these things is by rolling dice and then hitting minimum numbers required or by rolling dice and then applying the number you rolled to the number of damage done to a given room. So if a given room has 17 points of damage done to it, in order to restore the room to working state, you have to eventually like feed it however many dice add up to that that number and like each of your characters has a certain number of dice that is semi randomly determined at the beginning of the game you can replenish their dice through a number of different means and it's j- and anyway it's it's impossible it's basically almost impossible at least, <laughs> yeah, it, really at least it feels that way when you start playing uh yeah. it is a brutal brutal game and the reason it's brutal is not so much because it's j- it's governed by randomness um because a lot of a lot of games are that it's more that the penalty of failure is incredibly high i mean if you roll the wrong number it can damage the character who is rolling the dice and it can cause other problems and it can make dice disappear and there are just a lot of things that can go wrong and they pile up every single turn and also even if you are doing super well, no matter how well you do, you still lose a dice every turn from every character. Yeah, every time and a character rolls a di- rolls dice, to... they lose one. Ugh. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then, then you have to replenish them. Uh, and then also at the end of the turn, you have to choose like some fates for the characters. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's like plus two dice for us, but minus two health for us for like two of the crew. Yeah. And so or none of like those are ever plus actually one food, good. which gives you dice back, but minus one health for everybody. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh God, <laughs> so you have to choose the lesser of two evils mm-hmm. every turn. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I play this game for several days straight, like, you know, a few hours in to- several hours worth until I don't remember how much, but, and never, com- never completed it. And then I remember posting on Twitter. Um, I've never experienced such an extreme 
case of wanting to love a game versus this game hates me as, <laughs> as I have with Tharsis. And a bunch of people replied to me about it. And some people were saying, yeah, I feel the same way. And then some people were like, well, no, you just have to sort of get the hang of it and figure out what's going on. Um, I thought about it for a while and I, I, I read the tips from the people who replied to me and I sort of just said, okay, I'm going to do this. And then I went home and I beat the next two games of it I played. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to just approach this game. You have to come at it with the right mentality. There's like a few things you have to know to not eat shit in Tharsis. What are those things? I guess one of them is you don't always have to repair the thing. Yeah. Don't just don't just like mindlessly chase down all uh, disasters um, because while you it's it's often possible to like basically just barely stay on top of all the disasters you essentially lose a war of attrition because if all you're doing is repairing um rooms in your base you're probably not regenerating dice you're probably not getting more food you're probably not doing uh, you know repairing your ship you're probably not doing other things that you need in order to actually complete the whole game so that's one thing um the other thing is that because this is a game based on probabilities you actually before you do anything each turn you basically have to map out everything you're going to do that turn and consider what could happen if any given decision goes right or wrong you know like there there are some rare cases where you can be almost completely certain that a given decision is going to work because you're like okay i in this case i really just need two remaining points to clear at this room and this person has two dice so it would be impossible for me to fuck this up you know yeah there are cases like that but that's rare usually it's like okay I need to have some redundant plans and I need to have, I need to think about all the ways that each step of this could go wrong. And I need to order my decisions such that if things do go wrong, I have a fallback that might not be the most ideal outcome to the turn, but it will be the one that, that takes care of the most pressing stuff yeah. relatively certainly. And then um, leaves me some wiggle room. And like, you just have to sit there and feel like, okay, I, I start thinking a lot about like, well, every two dice, any two dice on average, you can, you know, you're more, you're most likely to get a seven between the two, right? Like that's the most common outcome of rolling two dice is a seven. So you start thinking like, okay, this person has four dice. That's maybe on average about a 14 and you never know. And like they're a specialist, so they get one extra reroll. So I'm maybe more likely to edge out that average by a little bit, but you know, also in this room, is a really shitty thing where if you roll sixes, you take damage. So like, I need to make sure that they have a lot of health, but as long as they have enough health, it's okay to get sixes because I'll then bring my doctor in after this and like bump their health up. And like, you just have to really think about this stuff and be like, well, what if that all goes wrong? Yeah. Then what am I going to do? And like, it's really about priority and planning. And I suspect for some people, that's just not really a fun thing but if you can get into that the sort of logistics aspect it's it's really good that's why um and that's the part of it that really feels like a board game it's not just yeah, because yeah, you're yeah. rolling dice that it feels like a board game it's that mapping out this whole strategy and having fallback plans for the whole, you know, for this entire crazy move that you're gonna mm -hmm. make feels super board gamey it actually jake a thing that i there, i have like a sort of theme of stuff i've been playing recently that unintentionally cropped up for me in the last couple weeks 
um, between this game, um, between another game that I know Spaff and I both played, which is Churchill Solitaire, <laughs> and then between Bridge, which is the, you know, the classic card game that uh, Jake and I played a ton of a few weeks ago. I played some more Bridge this weekend. Oh, did you really? Yes. Who'd you play with? Uh, Dana's mom and are you talking about actual bridge yes we'll get to bridge in a little bit (laughs) okay we're gonna roll through some card (laughs) games in a minute here Uh, (laughs) with that you played with dana's mom yeah nice she's a big bridge person right uh no her husband right okay okay yeah yeah yeah. or was when he was younger i guess Mm -hmm. um that's awesome but the reason i the reason these things all synced up to me is because they all have a lot to do with counteracting the effects of randomness through forward planning and like hedging. Um, and that is something that like the reason it was significant to me is because that's actually not really what most video game design and strategy is about. You know, like uh, in video games, a lot of the skill stuff is immediate. You know, it's like my reaction to this situation right now, or it's like, if I'm planning a long-term strategy, um, it's, it's one in which I'm going to, kind of like keep plugging along. Uh, like in a real-time strategy game or something like that, where you're, right. you're sort and, of building up a plan. As yeah, a, but and in a real-time strategy game, you have to react instantly all the time, but you're still making those like snap right. judgments. Like you're sort of recalculating a strategy all the time in a real-time strategy game, especially at high levels. This is more of a weird combination of um, like reflection and stasis and kind of just adjustment. It's really hard to describe, but there's, I I feel similarly internally, like in my brain, I I feel very similarly when I was playing all three of these things, which is that you can make a decision that completely screws you way down the line and there's actually nothing you can do about it. And you have to kind of be okay with that. And that's not really the same as a real-time strategy game. Like Mm -hmm. you want to always be able to pull back up in one of those games, but in these games that are just so fully governed by dice and cards, it's not that it's random whether you win or lose. Like a more skilled player will win more of the time for yeah. sure. But there, there's also this just acceptance that like sometimes this is a situation and if you didn't deal with the situation correctly, like that's it. You know, in a way that feels like bigger than just like messing up in the moment. Yep. Before we get to Churchill Solitaire. Solitaire. Um, when you were asking about games that Zach Gage has made, his most recent game before Tharsis was actually Sage Solitaire, which is an, ah, uh, a, a, a mobile game Solitaire variant that is actually really good if you are looking for a card game to play by yourself on your phone. It um, it deals out the deck in a three by three grid, and then you have to basically make very small, um, very small, like scored poker hands out of them, or you have to like click on two cards that are a pair or a run or a flush or whatever. And the, you have to make sure that that you form those by taking cards out of different rows. So you can't, um, you can't just deplete the same row over and over again. And then you have a certain number of cards you can, you can trash legally. Um, and you earn the ability to trash cards back, but it's a really, it's a really good, clean solitaire variant Mm, that combines a lot of, a lot of things that are good about various card games into uh, that. And I think one of his goals for this, which is 
a very practical goal was let's make uh, a computer solitaire game where the cards are actually big enough to see on screen. So he designed one that can fit on a three by three grid instead of the like classic right. layout 10 rows that you then have to like yeah. use a stylus to play on a phone basically. So like it's, that is a challenge with Churchill solitaire. I will say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, that's another Zach G- gauge game that mm-hmm. is really, really recent. Um, yeah, that's cool. That's, that's interesting. That, and that was my seg into Churchill solitaire. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Churchill Salter is a game that was basically project led by Donald Rumsfeld, yes. which is why? amazing. <laughs> uh, it's like, I mean, and that's why I played it. Yeah, right? me like, too. <laughs> which, you know, I mean, not that I sort of follow the work of Donald Rumsfeld, obviously, but like, <laughs> Donald well, Rumsfeld, game speak designer. yourself. But there was a, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a long time. But fan. there was a, um, there was this really sort of hilarious and good article in the Wall Street Journal about the development of this game, which involved Donald Rumsfeld like passing on the rules to this church, this Salter variant that was played by Winston Churchill was then passed on to what the Belgian ambassador is that? Does, does anyone remember one of his A's or something? Is that, that the root? I didn't realize it was this convoluted. Well, and then and then passed root. on from that person to Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, and uh, so, so Rumsfeld sort of, the, the rules are obviously just what they are. The rules, the rules of the, the, the rules of the variant are pretty straightforward, but the, the funny thing about the, the sort of, the thing that was particularly interesting about this article was the way that Rumsfeld sort of directed all the other more subjective parts of the game that aren't just like, these are what the rules are, which is that he would record these audio memos with just little bits of feedback about the game and then send them to the development team, uh, which w- so like we got a new Rumsfeld wave. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which I guess is just how he has well, they- communicated with his staff for a long time. Yeah. Like, he, like when he, you know, in politics and whatever else, he just, does it by way of these little audio memos, which they call, he calls snowflakes. I keep yeah, reading this in every right. article about this. They yeah, keep yeah, going yeah. about these snowflakes. Mm. He left snowflakes of suggestion. Yeah. And one of the things that ha- <laughs> one of the ones he left apparently was that at some point in development, he said, you know, this is getting too, too artsy here. I think what we really need is some like Churchill quotes and some stuff about the war. And that's, that's the direction we should be going in. Not this like artsy thing that seems to be happening. Um, which I guess means that at some point the artists on the game started Making putting things in that were more nice. expressive. Yeah. expressive. I mean, it is actually a nice looking game. It just looks nice in a very sort of classic, elegant way of this sort of the table, you know, this sort of table and the like little, there's like, um, it just looks like an office, you know, it looks yeah, like you begin your game office. and it like shows the desk and then it like camera zooms in on the table and the cards are all laid out where Churchill left them, presumably. <laughs> it also has a story. <laughs> when you move the cards, there's a little dust. He's like, no, 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 hasn't set. They, uh, and there's this weird campaign. There's a story mode. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I don't really see the point of quite honestly, but <laughs> there is an interesting thing about the, <laughs> the way the story mode works, which is that Indeed. all of the deals are predetermined. So there, the story. The they went back and they figured out Churchill's various hands over <laughs> yeah. over the time that he played this. Oof, gross. Um, but there are two hundred deals in the campaign, and you know each one is numbered, and every numbered deal will be the same every time you play it, which is really actually cool, as it turns out, because it means 
as you're learning how this game works, and it's really hard, by the way. It is re- it's played with <laughs> yeah. two decks. It's a, it's Solitaire played with two decks. Um, so it's a much bigger version of Solitaire. And then also this thing called the Devil's Row, which are six cards that are laid out uh, at the top of the board, which cannot be ever moved onto the main playing field. They can only be moved onto the sort of like final piles mm-hmm. off in the upper right, which means that they basically just remove a bunch of potentially useful cards from your play. So that is where a lot of the long-term strategy comes from is looking at those cards up there and being like, okay, I am, if there's like, let's say a seven of hearts in there, I'm only ever going to have one seven of hearts available to me until I hit that one up there, which means I have to like work around this. I'm only going to have three red sevens for this game. Whereas I'm going to have four of most cards. And like, that is like, Sounds like a small thing, but is a totally massive, uh, like stick in the spokes. It's, it's really crazy. And so because you have access to this, to these deals, when you inevitably lose a game, you can think, okay, what could I have done better given the exact parameters? So you can replay the same deck over again. Yeah. And you replay that exact same deal and you go, all right, can I actually beat it this time? And there are some cases where I have been able to, and then there's some, there's one deal number two, I had to just skip because it's brutal. It's completely brutal. So do you I think this is going to create, one. do you think this is going to create a like Spelunky daily challenge or desert golfing oh, situation? Man, that'd be good. <laughs> I don't think so because, because those games both, you can sort of just play. This is what I mean about games like this, these sort of dice and card driven games being, feeling very different to most video games. You can't just like play it just in its, in that kind of semi mindless way that you can with other games. And that's yeah. not a knock on those games. I mean, I, you know, Spelunky is like one of my absolute favorite games of all time. Um, but even if you're losing, you can still just kind of like moment to moment, you can just kind of make decisions. And like most, a lot of the tiny decisions you make individually don't matter that much, but most of the tiny decisions you make in Churchill Solitaire matter a lot. There have got to be people, though, for whom having that 200 predetermined deals campaign means once a day, I will play one Churchill Solitaire deck. Yeah. Until yeah. I get through them, and I will spend the good part of a year yeah. doing that as instead of my crossword but, or something. Yeah, yeah, and that's totally fine. I mean, that seems totally reasonable. I mean, for you, Solitaire has been kind of that game for people. It was on Windows, right? And everyone just... yeah played that at their day yep. jobs well, but that was a kind I, of just like random you know just play it and yeah. not really care whereas this yeah. you have to really care i remember i played a lot of spider solitaire when that got added to windows and i remember talking about that on adult thumbs years and years ago um and honestly i can't remember really if it's like super close to this game or not i think it might be i think it might have used two decks i don't remember um so i think it might actually be kind of similar to churchill solitaire but i i barely remember anymore but yeah minesweeper was the one that really yeah, that was awesome. my like Windows time waster. That Hopefully, Rumsfeld will next release Churchill Minesweeper. <laughs> God, that fits the theme so horribly well. <laughs> the the RPG element that's of it just, is hilarious. That's, that's just like live action chess. That's just him ordering people around yes. a fucking minefield. Yes. Sweep that mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would just look like Hitman Go or something, but with a tiny Churchill in the corner <laughs> directing people around. Yeah. 
I want to read you the beginning of the campaign because it's yeah. really important. This game really immerses you in the world of Churchill. Mm -hmm. It's not enough for it just to be actually a good game, which I did not expect at all. I didn't expect either. I just I got it last night and then I just played it all night. Yeah. Um, you start the game, it says, Welcome to Sandhurst. Autumn, 1893. You've been accepted by the Royal Military College at Sandhurst with the British Empire's best and brightest. One of your classmates is a promising young cadet named Winston Churchill. He's sharp, but learn the rules and you could be sharper still. If you can survive these drills, we might make an officer of you yet. Stand up straight, make those salutes crisp, and don't be daft, cadet. And then you begin playing, and it zooms in on the desk, and you, and you play a game of solitaire. But not just that. It has a soundtrack to it, yep. which is really it's quite stirring. So then you begin playing solitaire. <laughs> nice relaxing game. Yeah. So here's a here's Do the cards like make the sounds of munitions being loaded into weapons and stuff as you like <laughs> no, no, it's not that no. crap. So if you press there is a button that says surrender and you can surrender instead of quit and it says never surrender when you press it. <laughs> Which puts this in the realm of a doom clone, I think. <laughs> you're gonna chicken out or you're gonna be a man, Churchill Solitaire. Never surrender. <laughs> um I have a good story about that music, which is that so I Often when I play games like this, I'm also listening to podcasts. It's usually if I'm sort of on the bus on the way home. And that was the case two days ago when I was, I was at the bus stop waiting to go home after work. And I have my flow for, for getting, you know, a game of this type up really like right at the same moment I'm getting a podcast started is very, it's a tight loop at this point because I've done it so many times. So I just sort of, I went into, uh, Overcast, which is the podcast app I use, I launched an episode of Fresh Air, which was uh, with a reporter who was reported on Chris Christie, uh, New Jersey, you know, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, or current anyway, current um, presidential candidate. And oh God, is he? Gross. Uh, who isn't? Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, true. there's a lot of them. And um, and the. Uh, and Dave Davies, who was doing the interview, sitting in for Terry Gross. Wait, started, Chris Christie and Dave Davies? <laughs> well, <laughs> doing it wrong. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, Chris Christie wasn't actually on the interview. It was with a, a reporter who's followed him for a long, long time. Joe Johnson. But, yeah, but, Joe Josie. <laughs> John Johnson. Um, so Dave Davies starts giving the introduction to this, to this, you know, uh, like interview. And it's, he's just talking about this reporter's work and following this politician for like a decade and all of this. And there's this stirring music in the background <laughs> and, and which is like, yeah. And <laughs> it's not music. And I was like, oh, okay. So they often, you know, just have, have music. It was that exact track. They often, you know, they often have music on fresh air, like during that introduction, just to sort of set the mood. And it was, I was like, is this supposed to be like a house of cards, like stirring political thing? Cause he's like, the governor was involved in the scandal of Bridgegate when he left us. Yeah, and it kept going, and I'm like, man, they mixed this really loud. Like, I, I'm having this strange. This is a little big bit of reach here, NPR. Yeah, it was 
so strange. And I listened to it for like five minutes straight. Whoa, what? Thing. And I, yeah, and I was so, I was like, this is one of the, this is really an unusual choice for this show. Uh, and and then eventually I realized what was going on and I felt like a big idiot, but it was kind of amazing. Did you only work it, it out when Winston Churchill said, never surrender? Or something like that. <laughs> I, was, I was already in the What's game. Churchill doing in here? I, Church Churchill. Yes. <laughs> For NPR, I'm Bill Bilbo. Chris Christie acknowledged his role in the scandal. Never surrender. <laughs> he sounds sort of weird today. <laughs> With so. his prize-winning Churchill impression. <laughs> oh my god. They're both rotund men. Really Swear. similar guys, those two. Yeah. Surrender. Yes. Well, should, should we surrender for a break? Never, never, never. In nothing, great or small. It just goes on and on. Yeah. That's why you quit. Like, that's where you, if you lose, he goes on forever. He just goes on forever and ever and ever. Never, so, I, most commonly, people will just hit that for fade away. They'll press the home button and he'll just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it just sticks and it says game over. And he's just like, never, 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 never surrender. <laughs> Churchill Solitaire. Yeah. Genuinely good. good. Really, it's a, it's really a, brutal. It's a again. free to play game, technically, but you can spend $5 and unlock the whole campaign. So it's I'm basically that's what Churchill did. It's basically, five dollars. Yeah, he unlocked his the whole war. military campaign. Oh man, you $5. can also you can also buy <laughs> five dollars was worth a lot more back then. <laughs> you can also buy packs of undos and like hints, which are the hints delivered by Churchill? No, they're just a little <laughs> what? flashing Here's what thing I would do. that just says like oh. a move you can make. And there was a really funny comment from uh, from Rumsfeld in the the Wall Street Journal article I read in about the hint this, screen, oh. which was that. He like Rumsfeld apparently is sort of fully fully endorses the use of the hint button because he says, you know, in life you can always ask for help. But he is he was he's totally against undo and does not believe that any players should actually use it. Because <laughs> oh, wow. that is not that's not something that, that you is. You don't get a do over. No do over. You can get a hint life. before you act, yeah. but you can't take yeah. it back. Yeah. I wonder if that's exactly. Churchill rules. What, like what, no do overs, but you can ask someone else to help you. Sure. Like you can ask America. <laughs> To come and help. Sure. Churchill believes in at least one do-over, which is the Second World War. <laughs> God. Jeez. All right, let's take a break. Never surrender. Video game. This episode of Idle Thumbs is brought to you by Postmates. Postmates is an online courier service that will bring any product right to your door in less than an hour. Uh, Postmates' network of couriers can deliver from anywhere. Think GameStop, Chipotle, Walgreens, McDonald's, 7-Eleven, or any other local store or restaurant. What about Outback Steakhouse? I couldn't say. Probably. Let's just. What about Arby's? Yes. If you have an Arby's around, like we don't have Dairy Queens here, so you probably couldn't get a Dairy Queen. What about TCBY? Probably. Yeah. What the hell's that? That's. Nobody knows what it stands for, but it's. I think it's like. This can't be yogurt. Cool beans yogurt. (laughs) That's cool. But, but yogurt, y- but yogurt, yogurt. But, but yogurt. I want yogurt. So that's get, all they can have. Can you get is... that on here? Y- yes. Within an hour? I think within within an hour, pretty much anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so if you download the Postmates app on iTunes or Android and enter the code THUMBS, you'll get a free first delivery from Arby's only. Video. Actually, from, any, from anywhere. <laughs> <Or> that, <yeah. laughs> put that in there. But. 
video from your local Carl's Jr. or Hardee's. <laughs> local franchises may differ. We've got a Whiz Burger nearby. Oh man, oh, man, I drive past one of those on the way home. There's only one. Only one. Is that the only one? Yeah, yeah. there's cool. only one Whiz Burger. Have you been there? Yeah. Yes, we used to go there because that's where it looks the old, good. The old battle thumbs up. It's like a shitty, dirty burger. We both had to yeah, poo awesome. real bad after eating at Whiz Burger. I went to Whiz Burger like three times. Oh man, I went there once oh, and I pooped man. real bad. Yeah, it's totally fine if you are if you want a just like legit old school diner like yeah. piece of shit burger which which sometimes i do enjoy more than like a, a good hamburger um that is that is the place whiz burger on like cool. south van ness and 18th or whatever if you live yeah. in san francisco take the auto thumbs postmates challenge <laughs> and have them deliver a whiz burger from whiz burger to your house in Fuck. under an hour god i hope they deliver from whiz burger <laughs> W H I Z burger. I sold them now. Man. Look for Maybe it. On I'll Postmates. try to order from Whiz Burger on that. <laughs> Offer code thumbs. Video game. Um, all right, so we're going to talk about bridge a bit. I guess we're back. It's time for our bridge bit. No, we were having a moment's silence there to commemorate. Did something. you did you feel that playing bridge this weekend? Did you feel any more competent? Slightly more competent because I looked up. Um, the sort of baseline way that you communicate to your partner when bidding. Wait, 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 back up. And what bids mean. Yeah. How did you guys start playing bridge? I can't remember. <laughs> we on? were up at like a, a sort of a beach down at a beach house that Jake has access to in Pismo Beach, California. For which New is Year's. Just like a little beach community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for New for, mm-hmm. there I've for been New there. Years. And we were sitting around and we sort of said, let's we just said let's play bridge for some reason. Yeah, I can't and remember why. We that also then we we loaded up. we loaded up some guides for how to play bridge on the internet, and we tried to teach ourselves how to play bridge. Yeah, nice. turns we out just, we had a deck of cards, and it just seemed like a funny thing to do. When you have four people, might yeah. as well. Yeah. Have you talked about bridge at all on the podcast? Not really. I mean, brief, very briefly, but not we not the experience of playing it really. I guess when talking about bridge, this is kind of like talking about Dota. Or something in that there are mm. people who are so hardcore into bridge that anything that we say about bridge will be uninformed, will be uninformed and ignorant, and we're gonna fuck it all up. And people who are so hard into bridge that they are just gonna like, if it hurts you to hear people talk about bridge badly, thank you for listening. We'll see you guys next week <laughs> yeah, on yeah, Idle Thumbs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think this is gonna be a super long segment or anything. But no, but like, it, man, it is so easy to fuck it up because. As simple as the actual rules of bridge are, the like bridge metagame is fucking out of control. Oh yeah. Well, okay. So this is another way. You know, I was saying that that these that the sort of trio of games that I was talking about that are you know these dice and card games feel very different in their design to how modern video game design tends to be weighted. And I think in bridge that's maybe even more true in that so much of the subtlety and weird. Um, nuances and meta elements come out of just like the the incredibly baroque way the game is scored like over time yes. there's there are a few things that that I can talk about that will help you understand that better actually okay, okay. Uh, so should we talk should we explain the basics of this so yes to to for for clarity's sake for people who play a lot of bridge or who don't live where we live the bridge variant that Chris and I played was American contract bridge which differs from the bridge played in the UK and in other European nations slightly but I think the basics of it uh, are the same yeah bridge is a card game that is played 2v2 um, where 
I guess where do we even where do we even start? I mean, the 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 thing that's the thing that most notably I think separates Bridge from a lot of other card games is it is a two versus two card game, but um, in each given round of Bridge, like each deal, one of those teams, one player, uh, the the person who's sort of the uh, on offense, I guess, the person who's declared like. The declarer. The declarer is actually their job. Um, <laughs> they play both their hand and their partner's hand. So, um, if their you, partner basically sits out that game, um, which is crazy because it makes it ends up making it effectively every round is two v one. But whoever who that person is cycles around. Um, well, and the the information availability is is asymmetric as well. It's it's a, it's a yes for a game that looks totally symmetrical. Like, and I think if you've never played it before, certainly this was true for me. It seemed like a symmetrical game, but it's totally it's not, not because it's, the person the person who is it's one person playing against two people, and the one person has complete information about their team's they have cards. Ac- they have access to half of the deck from the beginning of the game, whereas the other the, the two players who are playing on defense are on the same team, but they only each know what is in their hand and what is out on the dummy's mm-hmm. hand. Um, uh, so the the thing that you do as you go around is it's, it's a game. I guess maybe like hearts or there's a few other games where, where you, your objective is just to, is to take tricks where mm-hmm. each, each person puts down one card. Um, and then the, whoever has the, the winning card out of those four takes it and then they get control, uh, for the next go. And you play and you play 13 tricks. You play until you've dealt, uh, all of your cards out. And the person who took the most tricks doesn't necessarily win, but your objective is to take the yeah. most tricks. And the way, and much like in, you know, I was talking about with Churchill Saltair, a lot of how you play is based on what you already know, what you can see on the board, and therefore the inferences you can make about what's coming up. And you have to plan really far ahead and be like, okay, I know what, what our team has because as the declarer, I can see my hidden hand and the dummy's public hand, which means I know, I don't know what each of the individual other team members have, but I know that combined what they have. So I'm going to try to engineer each of these turns so that I essentially can guarantee as many tricks as possible before I have to start taking any risks. And like, and I'm not very good at this, um, <laughs> but, but some people are, and it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, the, each suit has a card value at which point you get a bonus. It's called making your game. So if you like, if you're playing with no Trump, you have to take X, you have to bid X number of tricks over six to get like a 500 point bonus. Or if you're saying, if you're playing spades, you have to bid a certain number of tricks over. And that like, you can get huge points by, by deliberately taking riskier bids in each suit. So, um, which we did with the first, we time, did without knowing we what played, we were doing. We just downloaded a bridge scoring app. Yeah. So we didn't have to worry about any of this stuff. We just literally plugged in the results of each game and it would be like, you got 40 points or like you got 750 points and we didn't know why. <laughs> right. And it's because had we known what we were doing when someone said like four diamond or whatever, it's like, oh, well that is above the threshold where yeah. you get that bonus payout. And we just didn't know it. But like that, the bidding game versus the trick taking game and that cycle yeah, that goes through. They're basically two different games that are really heavily intertwined, but are played totally yep. differently. It's really interesting. The, the best thing about bridge though, in my humble opinion, is that when you are the dummy, that means you can just go and make cocktails and yeah, drinks for everyone, <laughs> which I'm sure is That's part of why that exists. Part. I'm sure that what actually ended up happening, the way this game evolved, is that one person who was the host just kept getting up and saying, play for me. And uh, that has evolved into a fucking crazy game. Uh, anyway, if yeah, you... Yeah, that, that's another thing about 
this game and any tr- sort of traditional game, there is no like thing just called bridge that you can, you know, like it's, it is a really fluid set of rules that has evolved over the last like roughly 130 years, I want to say. And reading about the history of it is really, really interesting. Like the things that have changed and the things that have not changed are very telling. And it's more, it's closer to the way language changes than to the way like video games are developed, yep. for instance. And for instance. As far as mm. playing bridge goes, I cannot speak at all to how like anything resembling mastery level bridge play is. I suspect there's also like old person bridge which just is like the rote actions of doing the cards to have something to talk about but as someone who just likes games and gaming of all various types the act of learning bridge has been really fun and i actually really recommend it if you like if you have you know three other friends with whom you have a regular game night consider a novelty weird one where you just get (laughs) bridge for dummies or go find an online guide that has some sample hands you can play through that gets you through taking tricks and bidding and just try to learn bridge over the course of a night or two it's fascinating it's just a different card game than most you've probably played if you Mm -hmm. if you grew up playing like Texas Hold'em uh, with your family or something like that. It's just it's the, the amount of madness going on that you get out of a deck of cards with Bridge is is high and surprising. Yep. It's true. Um, and I'm sure eventually becomes a completely different game once you're playing Tournament Bridge. But uh, Sure. One weird, actually cool thing about the way ter- Tournament Bridge works is much in the style of the Churchill Solitaire campaign, Tournament Bridge is played with everyone being given the same oh, deal. Oh, yeah. So when you play when you play a tournament, you're just in a room full of people who I guess all have the exact pre-shuffled set of cards, so that everyone is playing on equal That's cool. playing field. I like that. Yeah, it's weird. Like, it's an interesting game. Weird. You should do a let's play of it. The guy oh, who man. the guy who um, <laughs> we, well, people would be so mad. People who know the what guy who doing. programmed all the poker AI in, in Poker Night, Telltale's poker game, is mm. apparently a tournament bridge player who's partnered with his mom for basically his whole life, which oh, I think is awesome. That's yeah. sweet. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I don't know if you um, these podcasts podcasts get scanned for all the words inside them to build any kind of me- uh, metadata, but if they do, this one will have like a word cloud that will just have the word Trump really, really big. And I don't know how good that will be for your cast, but you know. <laughs> What is in this episode? Trump. Trump, 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 and Trump. clone. Making podcasting great again. <laughs> Trump clone. <laughs> just a Trump clone. Just another Trump clone. Back to the Future 2's Biff Tannen is just a, <laughs> He's a Trump, Trump clone. clone. <laughs> he is a Trump clone. That. True. Um, you guys want to do some reader mail here? Yeah. Yes. This Finn. has probably been a massive episode, so we should not yeah. go crazy on it. But yeah, It's been like an hour. Huge episode. Uh, <laughs> we talk, Think about all the games we've talked about today, Chris. Bridge. Finn, Finn Downs writes, Hey Thumbs, in light of your discussion about the monetization of Valve fan games in episode 246, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on fan artists. For the most part, art sold at conventions or online is overlooked by larger developers, but the impact on smaller games is much less clear. For instance, Toby Fox, the developer behind Undertale, has been very direct in speaking out against the sale of fan art for his game because of lost sales of merchandising. He's appealed online for fans to be respectful and to respect and to report unauthorized fan art sales, but this led to some discussions about whether or not incentivizing fan art is actually beneficial for promoting smaller games or if it's doing more harm than good. At the same time, a recent Gamasutra article highlighted a competition that gave fans of games like Crypt of the Necrodancer and Armello to have their art monetized while giving the devs a cut of the profits. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the impact for fan art for smaller devs, and if we'll see TF2-style monetization of fan art on the horizon. Cheers, Finn from Sydney. Man, I, I, have such, I have such mixed feelings about that that I don't know if I can actually form a worthwhile opinion. Are I, they talking about, like, 
people who make shirts and phone cases and stuff with I don't art yeah I feel like there's a I feel like that's right there's there's like there's in good faith fan art that is being sold and in bad faith fan art that's being or like the, I, like fan that's that's so like I I don't even know if you can classify that because like a person who's at an artist's table at or like who's in like artist alley at Comic Con who draws a picture of a character from an indie game and has it pinned up and they're selling it for money seems like that seems very different to me from like a person who takes your video games key art and puts it in Amazon and sells a phone case for it. Like that feels like completely different, like different intent. Those are two ends of that. But I, but I think that like people making and selling um, like quote unquote bootleg undertale fan works I man, I don't know where I land on that personally because like I've bought a ton over the years of like old like someone did an amazing like woodcut hash style illustration of the box art to Monkey Island 2 and I yeah. bought that. I've bought like a bootleg Corley Motors thing before because I love old LucasArts stuff. That said that's Lucasfilm, which is a, a you know, order of magnitude bigger than like Undertale or something like that, but I I don't know. Like if someone well, if someone made something like that based on Firewatch, I would probably be more flattered than annoyed. But it depends but what it, it depends is. Like if yeah. you offer the same thing and someone's buying someone else's thing that is similar to yours, then that sucks. Yeah. But if you're not offering, say say you don't sell any t-shirts and and someone makes and sells a Firewatch t-shirt, that just tells you that you should probably be making t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, then you can get mad, but like I don't, I don't feel like there's any right answer or wrong answer no. on this because it seems like it comes down so much to the intent of a specific person and the desires of a specific like like creator or copyright owner or mm-hmm. whatever the hell it is because yeah like I think a lot of a lot of stuff that fans make they end up making it because they perceive a hole that they wish was being filled and they do it for themselves and then mm-hmm. like at that point it's like is that actually true in your opinion or not, or like you know, well, so or I, do you want the, do you want that to exist, or do you not care? I think it really comes down to the. Individual I, I think person. we're also talking about this all from a very modern perspective, which is where we just expect that everything will just be merchandise. If it hasn't been, then that is a, a hole that is like needs to be like corrected. But well, I don't, I think, don't know if that's no, no, that's that's a more crass version than what I meant. I mean, if no, a no, fans no. like, I just Sorry. want to wear a thing on a shirt that I like. Right, I, I understand that, but I'm not saying it in a way that anyone's being malicious. I'm saying we're speaking about it in I th- from I think a perspective that just presupposes like there will be T-shirts of this. Like the fact that you say like I like this and I want a T-shirt, like that reflects a reality in which you grew up where T-shirts of things you like have always existed. But like, sure, that's not there's nothing it, that that's just because we happen to live in a world where that's the case. But then you you look at someone like Bill Watterson who created Calvin and Hobbes who very intentionally never merchandised right. Calvin Hobbes. There's never been a single piece of official Calvin and Hobbes, Hobbes merchandise, which is very unusual. But it's like, is it – but that was a very specific choice he made for yeah, very that's, strongly Yeah, that's what I was trying reasons. to get to at the very so end of then this. What do you, yeah, is, then is, like, it gets comp- I think it comes down to what do you, you – know, yeah, your opinion as the creator of a piece of work on whether or not you want that stuff to exist. Like Undertale guy, it sounds like, doesn't want it to exist because, because they want to – be able to commercialize on it themselves, which is very different than Bill Watterson not wanting that stuff to exist because he simply doesn't want Calvin and Hobbes to exist outside of the comic books. Um, And, you know, I mean, then on another axis, which is, 
I I am also really conflicted on, and again, also does relate to where we exist in in the 21st century. Uh, a lot of the response on the Idle Thumbs forums last week about this was, we also just live in an era where copyrights rule, and there was also a time period where this mm-hmm. was just fucking moot. Mm-hmm, because it sure. was it was one unenforceable and two people didn't care and three the public domain was so much stronger that it was just kind of expected that there was going to be bootlegging that people were going mm-hmm. to just claim ownership of this of your work yeah for a long time it was really one of the things that was a huge challenge about making a living as a creative person was that there was very little uh copyright protection like if you were a composer it was pretty common for your work to just get reproduced and copied constantly because what are you going to do about like, there's not really any practical thing you can do about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this stuff is, there's never really been a perfect, there's never been a perfect world of this stuff where all the concerns have been addressed. And you say people wanting it on a t-shirt is a modern thing, but at the same time, like, well, because t-shirts are a modern, sure. But like popular characters in fiction were picked up, and unauthorized sequels are written by people who liked the work or people who thought they could make money off of the off of fans wanting more oh, yeah. and whatever, which is not a T-shirt. It's it's for sure. It's, exists, well, it's taking yes. a thing and putting mean, and doing more in the same yes. medium. I wasn't but, you know. when I said that I wasn't I, I didn't mean to come off as judgmental as though there's something unique to people now that is like crass or anything. What I simply meant was there is a production reality that exists now that has not actually existed. Yeah, any creative historically work can become very long. immediately a multimedia intellectual property mm-hmm. by default. As, right. uh, but yeah. I think extension of things that people like has been a thing since any notion of popular sure. culture has existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, I, traditionally that stuff would have been more, would have been, uh, I think less easy to instantly extend out into something like essentially also professional. If you look at, you know, someone like Ollie Moss, who we, who we work with, um, who is an incredibly talented artist, uh, a lot of the sort of the work that he does based on existing uh, properties, the, the, the ones that are authorized versus the ones that are unauthorized, there's not really like artistically often a huge difference. Like it would not really be obvious, I think, to a casual observer, which is which. Which of all his works are licensed and which are right. just him doing something because he likes it. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and I'm, I don't really have a, a conclusion about that, but it's like, but that is that is definitely a, like he can make really high quality uh, reproductions of something that are at a level that, you know, in the past, just an individual person just going out and making stuff yep. may not have had access Man, to. Man, have we talked about reality on the norm on this podcast before? No, I don't think so. Do you know what that is? No. I, mm-hmm. It rings a bell, but I can't place Man, it. Man, uh, in the like late 90s, early 2000s, the AGS community, which is the Adventure Game Studio. Uh, mm-hmm. Adventure Game Studio, yeah. is, oh, it's still used by, by yeah. uh, Dave Gilbert, by Wadget Eye Games. I think they're one of the – and Dropsy, I think, was made. Cart uh, Life was made in it. And, and Cart Life. So AGS is still used <laughs> for indie development, which is awesome. But there was – there was a project which I don't I don't think this sort of thing exists very often, but I thought this was so fucking cool. It was a, a group of AGS creators um, who all had a shared universe called Reality on the Norm. I think re- I think that Reality was the name of the town and Norm was the name of the river. Like mm-hmm. it was a like mm-hmm. in, in British town yeah, name. I remember this now. <laughs> but it was a shared universe where there was no sole creator of Reality on the Norm games, and anyone who wanted to make a story involving yeah. Reality on the Norm could, and it would just be submitted into a shared canon. So you could sequelize other people's stories, you could pull characters out of other people's games, but they were all a series of point-and-click adventure games, generally. I mean, I'm sure people used AGS and Reality on the Norm to make 
genre bending offshoots, but it was instead of being a sort of, instead of it being a fan fiction community that gathered around an existing IP or even just an existing fanfic world, it was a game dev, like totally amateur game dev community that made a bunch of games all inside of a shared world that they collectively owned and morphed over time. That seems like a model that would have legs now so much more than it did 15 years ago when people or not 20 years ago, but we're getting close to when that community existed as sort of an early internet weird indie game game dev thing. It feels like the same type of passion that people use to just elevate and sort of weirdly do things with other people's IP. You could do that in this model, but I, it, I guess requires weird chance and weird, a mm-hmm. weird seed for that to exist. Like, yeah, man, that's a good poll. I would re- not reality on the that. norm. I think was able to exist because the AGS community was already super tight knit and mm-hmm. had its own forum yeah. and everyone in there was sort of spinning off each other's games anyway, mm-hmm. that then that could sort of exist as a bubble inside of that that could nurture itself enough to then pop I mean, out and become its own community independent of the AGS community. Yeah. That's kind of the equivalent of a sort of in an, in an earlier area era, a sort of uh, like a salon, you know, sort of people interested in a, in a, in some type of like literature or poetry or music or something, having regular meetings and then collaborating <laughs> on things in a sort of informal way. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was cool that that existed That's as a really bunch cool. of really goofy, probably one step up from MS paint adventures. Ah, some of them actually looked pretty nice, but yeah. like, you know, that it was totally, there was no, visual bar you had to hit no writing right. bar you had yeah, to hit yeah, yeah, it was just yeah, like yeah. i love this and i'm going to tell a story mm-hmm. in it using the rules of a point and click adventure game mm-hmm. it's really cool stuff yep yeah that's awesome that is awesome uh all right so no conclusions no firm conclusions reached into this email, no but, but it's an interesting it's a, it's a subject you can be? talk for about yeah. forever i think because it's yeah. just so for sure so all yep. over the place um so here's an amazing thing tom kidd writes opening script Hey, Thumbs, I had a quick epiphany when I was listening to a recent episode in which you weren't sure what episode you were introducing. I slapped together a PHP page that shows the current date in the format you usually introduce shows in and the episode number based on incrementing whatever the latest one in the RSS feed is. It's schnapple.com slash thumbs. <laughs> I have some ideas for how I'd like to expand this, but I thought I'd send the early version along in case it helps. I'll put the code on GitHub and stuff, so if you want to host it yourselves or if the community has better ideas, everyone can have at it. Thanks and keep up the good work, Tom Kidd. So if you go to this website... Oh, man! It, it knows! Just, currently, it reads... It's January 27th, 2016. This is Idle Thumbs 247. Man, do you think it jumps to the Amazing. nearest Wednesday? I hope it jumps to the next Wednesday. I'm sure it does, right? Oh, because we're recording it on the day today. Yeah, so we can't tell. Chris, this is your dream. <laughs> oh, wait, he says it's the current date. So it must... It must Feature request. Yeah. Maybe yeah. <laughs> the next Wednesday. Yeah. I like that it's presented Next as or a, current, nearest Wednesday in the future. As a, as a sponsor, like schnapple.com slash thumbs for your free date <laughs> <laughs> reading. That's really cool. Yeah, that's really funny. Schnapple. I have to bookmark this on my phone. <laughs> Need a nice app for it. Um, let's see here. Yeah, can we so, get a lock screen app? <laughs> so a if widget. it that it's a Tuesday or Wednesday, it just shows the next episode's date and uh, episode number. Because <laughs> we're bad people. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, Tegan Robichaud writes, this is from a few year, a few weeks ago, but I only just found out. The LS3, the final model of the big dog, was retired and put into storage at the end of 2015 oh, with man, we no never plans about, for future we development. We never talked about big dog shit. The thing that all of us joked about destroying humanity actually just stuck around for a few years 
Cost $42 million to develop and refine and then retired. What a world. Wait, they put him out to the postures? They yeah. Like, Big, Dog was re- Big Dog was retired because the military after field tests yeah. said, uh, this thing sounds like 10,000 bees, so we can't <laughs> use this for anything because people will just hear the sound of like a million bees and know that there's a Big Dog. Yeah, but then it will kill everyone. <laughs> But it, uh, <laughs> irrelevant, like, where they're like, we can't sneak into some they, some sh- sad town that we're going to ruin because it'll just go, <laughs> which just means that there's like a new silent big dog in the yeah. works. Yep, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't but like that. I really like that the reason they were like, no, sorry, there's just <laughs> a man. They, sounds they, too loud. <laughs> so they they were tinkering with an electric powered version, the electric big dog that is much quieter. But it's not Wait, powerful Wait, what is it powered enough. by now? I don't know. Gasoline? I don't know. <laughs> what? I mean, bees. I, bees. <laughs> <laughs> the kinetic power of bees. Just a little honey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know what's powered. I would have assumed it was electricity, but the loudness must be because of some... The electric big dog is not strong enough. <laughs> <laughs> the army are just like this is not environmentally friendly <laughs> bees are dying <laughs> we can't where just are all the bees them. going whip pan <laughs> <laughs> bees are disappearing suddenly now the bees have returned oh yeah it's gonna be fine bees why wasn't that the fucking premise of the new x-files well, the if the missing bees, bees mystery was because it was military kill bots <laughs> Instead, it was some bullshit, I bet. I haven't if watched it If you kick yet. the big dog and they'll come out and sting you. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the big dog can write itself, because if it spills over, all the bees come out. <laughs> uh, no, I'm sure, I'm sure that there's going to be some fucking nuclear big dog or something. Oh, yeah, for sure. A greased nuclear big dog. <laughs> oh, man. Silent. Yeah, okay. Big dog is powered by a two-stroke, one-cylinder, 15-brake horsepower go-kart engine Holy operating crap. at 9,000 RPM. Okay. Crazy. It was too goddamn loud. Wasn't fit for military oh, man. purpose. Also governed by a Pentium 4 CPU. <laughs> oh, Sick. Intel inside. Man, that <laughs> that big dog gets decent Quake 3 frame rate, I guess. <laughs> I wonder man, if the big dog run, prefers Unreal It's run Terminate. by a BlackBerry operating system. This, so the real what? problem with the big dog is that it's just oh, too wait, no. fucking out of date. Sorry, it's run by a Unix-like <laughs> operating system called QNX that was first... Developed in 1982 and is now owned by BlackBerry. Okay. Okay. Or developed by BlackBerry. Crazy. Know. Pentium 4. What a weird collection of things. Pentiums, yeah. bees. <laughs> <laughs> we just took whatever we had laying around. <laughs> <laughs> got some old, got our old rig. The There's going to be an amazing UT99 like 99% rig. invisible episode about a beekeeper who had an old computer and then developed a big dog. <laughs> I mean, okay, so an old... Unix-like system from the 80s, a go-kart engine. Um, uh, Pentium 4. Pentium 4, this little shit you find in, in your garage. Yeah, like like in the basement or whatever. This is, yeah. this is right. <laughs> Build a military kill bot. I think we did it. And then it cuts <laughs> to just like a really grumpy-looking general in full-dress uniform being just too damn loud. Too loud. <laughs> too loud. <laughs> shit! We had it. We had this. Never surrender. <laughs> <laughs> He's then gunned down by the fucking robot army, and yeah. <laughs> then they then they just raise a flag and take over. It's okay, he gets an undo though. <laughs> you hear a tinny recording of the music from Churchill Solitaire, and the robot plays that "Never Surrender" Churchill sound. They, releases they set, bees, which kill that general who has a bee set, allergy. They sent a big dog back in time to kill baby Hitler with Winston <laughs> Churchill, but they failed because he uh, heard it coming. It was way too loud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and it kept saying, never surrender. <laughs> like Churchill's voice. Man. <laughs> That's where that's that's where I, that's where Churchill learned that. Much like Nick Brecken developed his <laughs> classic phrase pretty good at age three, Winston Churchill learned the phrase never surrender from a big dog sent back in time doing a Winston Churchill impression. <laughs> <laughs> Which that implies that we're in the sort of you can't change history, it's a loop model of yeah. fictional time travel mm-hmm. because obviously Hitler was not killed because the robot which, was which too we long. already know because last week a bear was sent back in time to learn Nick Brecken's mailing address so that it could be sent to Nick Brecken's house. <laughs> uh, that's it so for this week's that's episode. The thumbs <laughs> universe of bullshit. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend if you liked that. Bees. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Idle Thumbs. You can send us mail at questions at idlethumbs.net. If you like the show, please do consider uh, rating us or reviewing us on iTunes or telling a friend. Um, any way you can spread the word about this show, whether it's you know on Twitter, on Facebook, on a gaming forum that you post on. Send a killer dog back in time to your friends, but have it play a recording of Idle Thumbs. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It won't kill them. They'll hear it coming, but they will be. But they'll be like, that was a really interesting observation about uh, solitaire. <laughs> <laughs> About the card game Bridge, I should listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Back in we don't time usually to- talk about Bridge this much, so if don't if your friends are confused, um, let them know that that is true. I think every episode is confusing, so it's fine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> if you have a novel way of describing this podcast to your friends, please tell us. <laughs> if you have any more apps that will help us make be less stupid when we're introducing the podcast, also <laughs> please let us know. If you want to end this podcast now, yeah. Uh, this podcast was brought to you by Postmates, uh, which is a courier service that will deliver uh, you goods, food, what have you, uh, to your door from any establishment in your city, such as uh, weird, old, decrepit diners like Whizburger, I assume. I in guess. theory. Hopefully. We have to put this to the test. Fingers Postmates crossed. delivers things using human beings and probably sometimes electric vehicles. So unlike the multi-billion dollar <laughs> Big Dog Project, you won't hear them coming. The food true. will magically appear at your house or any other thing you want. <laughs> if you uh, download the app on iTunes or Android and enter the code THUMBS, you'll get a free first delivery of whatever, of your burger. Man, it sounds like they should have sent Postmates back in time to kill Hitler, because it would have been... <laughs> we brought Hitler this Western bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> Download the Postmates app and use the promo code THUMBS. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>